Welcome to another episode of Saltgrass. Today I'm speaking with Warwick Smith, a Castlemaine local, about his dual career as an ecologist and an economist. You might remember him from the student strike episode earlier this season. He's fascinating to talk to, I think, because of his dual careers in both ecology and economics. So often we are presented with the idea that these two things are in competition with each other. And generally, according to our political leaders, people, jobs, industry and the bottom line are presented as the sensible and rational choice, if not the only choice. Any arguments against that are treated as irrational, dangerous, nonsensical or, God forbid, emotional. So we are told a story about how it's the economy or the environment, one or the other, not both. And we have been told this story for so long here in Australia, with the assumption that the economy is much more important for sensible people, that when we hear our political leaders say, well, we have to mine for coal or frack for gas for the sake of the economy, most Australians don't even blink. They accept that as true. But when you speak to Warwick or others like him, It's like suddenly someone has cracked a window and let in some fresh air after being locked in a garage with a car running and your dad is telling you that he has to run it or you won't get any pocket money. Today, we're exploring how Warwick came to be both an ecologist and an economist, and we delve into how the economy, money and trade relate to our way of living and our way of treating the environment, our home, our planet. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that saltgrass is produced on Jara country, home of the Jajarong people. We pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green at saltgrasspodcast.com. So when I first saw you, you were speaking at the town hall meeting, which was to call for the council to declare a climate emergency. And you were one of a, a, a lineup of speakers and you were, I think, the first speaker. And you just described quite simply but also eloquently and movingly about some of the ecological damages of climate change that we're already seeing in our region in places that we're familiar with and are close to home and then you talked about economy and how our whole society is set up not to help us move in the right direction around climate change and so your dual interests or your dual careers in your life have been ecology and economics, which I think is really a fascinating combination because they're not often heard in the same CV or resume. (laughs) No, that's right. And, And they kind of do appear very different. But one way of talking about economics is it's the ecology of humans. You know, both disciplines are the study of complex interactions and feedbacks Complex systems. Yeah, complex systems, how a system fits together and and what its parts contribute and what particularly what disturbing one particular part of it might do to the rest and the flow-on effect of disturbance, a big part of both disciplines. So it's interesting that the kind of maths and and statistics that sit behind the disciplines have got a lot of parallels, although they they have their own ways of doing it. It all makes sense now that you say it like that. (laughs) 
I'm like, of course. The I guess the field of complex systems is something that humans are only just starting to really explore in an academic sense, but in many scientific fields that complex systems is exactly what you've been studying for centuries. Yeah, that's right. Einstein would have quite liked to have been a biologist, but he thought that biological systems were too complicated. Computationally, maybe we'd be up to really studying and understanding biological systems in the 21st century. Oh, wow. And we're here. So tell us how you started, because you didn't start with economics. You started with the ecology. I mean, I started as a kid growing up in Canberra who chasing reptiles and frogs and catching them and sometimes keeping them at home, but mostly just observing them and getting out into the bush. You know, the good thing about growing up in Canberra, it's like a big country town, or at least it was back then, with the bush always within walking or riding distance. You know, for a long time, I think I was that kid who liked chasing lizards and stuff and who who never grew up. <laughs> and so I just always knew when I was going through school that I was going to go to uni and study biology. And I, I didn't really deviate from that path. I went to ANU and, and studied zoology and ecology and evolutionary biology. And then it was very strategic, surprisingly strategic looking back on it. You know, I did an honours project on... Uh, the grassland Ilus dragon, which was a recently rediscovered endangered species in the ACT grasslands. And I did that knowing that the ACT was going to have to take this rediscovery seriously and that there'd be money and research going on and that almost nobody knew anything about them, really. So I did that project realising that it would lead to employment. You know, it's pretty hard to get as a, as a biologist yeah. outside of academia. And I, I kind of at that point even knew I didn't want to be in academia. And, and yeah, sure enough, so I walked out of that into a job at Asian Park Service surveying uh, threatened species and then moved to New South Wales Park Service. And for a few years, I was working three months kind of rolling contracts with no job security. But Bob Carr was the Premier of New South Wales and injected a huge amount of money into national parks and threatened species research and uh, a whole lot of jobs in threatened species were advertised around New South Wales, permanent jobs. And I applied for them all and ended up getting a permanent senior job, you know, at 27 or something in the Sydney Threatened Species Office, basically because all of the experienced ecologists don't want to work in Sydney. So the jobs all around the rest of the state got filled by people with lots of experience. And, and so I kind of reached the mecca of Threatened Species work at that point, which was getting a permanent job that was reasonably well paid. And how old were you at that point? You were still quite young. You're 27. Uh, I found myself on the sixth floor of an anonymous office building in suburban nowhere, Sydney. There's a lot of great things about Sydney, a lot of beautiful places, and, and none of those are anywhere near Hurstville. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for a while, I lived in Lane Cove and was travelling right across Sydney to get there. You know, I lived in a beautiful place, but had a big commute, and then ended up thinking that was crazy, so I moved to Penshurst, which is the suburb right next to Hurstville, and, which we colloquially referred to as Penn's Worst and Worstville. And I just, you know, I was an ecologist who loved animals and loved nature and liked being in the bush. And I really only got out of the office to go to council offices to talk to them about threatened species and how they could protect them. And, and ultimately what the job was, was was fighting a rearguard action against the needs of a giant city trying to protect threatened species. And threatened species lost all the time, really. You know, you do a whole lot of work to get minor concessions here and there to help protect one particular spot, which was really isolated from others. And you kind of knew it was probably doomed in the long term. Interestingly enough, probably because I was still pretty young, felt like the permanent job felt like 
the light at the end of the tunnel had been turned off. You know, <laughs> it's kind of like yeah. there was something about those rolling contracts that always meant there was potential renewal and something coming up. But also, it just kind of really dawned on me that all the big important decisions to do with conservation and threatened species were being made in other places for other reasons and the threatened species legislation and protection was this sort of weird layer that came on at the end rather than being integrated into the higher level decision making and the result was inevitable that it was kind of just very slow decline mostly despite there being this thing called a recovery planning process it was really actually recovery it was mostly about doing the best you could to slow decline and so, yeah, I had a bit of a midlife crisis at the age of 27. <laughs> That's a bit young for that. That means I haven't got long to live. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to that point where you just had a major crisis of faith in your own career path and, and your ability to affect change in that field. Yeah, I did. And, it, you know, it's not that I ever felt like what the threatened species in a, the doing was pointless. I just felt like... It was the wrong level for me to be interacting with the system somehow. I was probably in Sydney for three months in that job before I realised it wasn't right and that I needed to get out and then it took me another six months to find a way out. I knew I needed a change and I ended up kind of going back to Queen and Species in a temporary job for a while and then I started a PhD, which was in dealing conservation biology, but I chose to work on a threatened goanna thinking that, you know, this is a big species that moves really big distances and lives in low density and therefore if you're going to conserve it, you need to conserve a lot of land. So thinking that if, if you conserve that, then it's an umbrella for protecting a whole lot of other things. So just thinking about bigger ways, because of the focus of threatened species, money is often on critically endangered things. And so, you know, I wrote some recovery plans for endangered orchids and a few other things that were just found on, you know, one hilltop on one person's property somewhere. And that's kind of where the money gets focused because there's only 12 individuals left, so it's critically endangered, so that's the one we need to save. And then the bigger picture kind of gets lost. So I thought we focus on these bigger things, they can be umbrella species, but I hadn't really cottoned on to the seriousness, I suppose, of my own internal kind of crisis and change of direction. So while I was nominally doing this PhD on... Goanna's, what I found myself doing was procrastinating by reading and writing and thinking about economics and philosophy. You couldn't stop yourself thinking from the bigger picture stuff. Yeah, a few years into the PhD, you know, I, I really realised, wow, you know, I, I knew I needed to change the direction. I, it, it was much bigger than I thought it was. And and I put a lot of time and effort and made a PhD scholarship and I think there was quite a bit of guilt there about not finishing. And so I just hung on. I was there, but still not really working on it. And in the end, I realised I, I couldn't do it anymore and I probably wasn't going to finish. And I threw in the towel and chucked my stuff in my car and just started driving. Like I literally just started driving without a real idea of a destination and and drove pretty much as far as you can drive, right? So I got to Perth. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of, well, you know, okay, I've run out of road to drive. And kind of drifted around in WA for I lived in Perth for a while and then I moved to Albany and I was in Albany reading and writing and thinking and the place that I moved into was, was right at the end of the Bewilman track there's a walking track in WA that goes it's a thousand kilometers goes from Perth to Albany and, and where I'd moved to was just at the end of that track and I was thinking to myself oh no that's a really appealing thing and then a mate of mine was going to Perth to visit his family 
and I decided, all right, I'll catch the bus to Perth and I'll catch up with Omar and then I'm going to walk home. <laughs> so, so that's what I, so A thousand I, kilometres, I, that's a long walk Yeah, home. yeah. So, <laughs> so I did the, the walk to Billman track. It was two months walking. Wow. There, there must be strategic stops along the way. Is it built for people to walk it? Yeah, it's, it's incredibly well constructed and there's, you know, there's these little three-sided huts spaced at about 10 kilometres apart with water tanks on the side collecting water and it goes as much as it can through the bush and the longest stretch between towns is about eight days. So you can do the whole thing without having to do food drops and stuff just by walking between towns and resupplying. And yeah, sure. So you, the most you'd have to carry is eight days' worth of food. Yeah, yeah, right. So, yeah, that was that was an amazing thing to do and, you know, one of the best things I've done in my life. But about halfway through it, I, I just kind of realised that I was going to move to Melbourne and study philosophy and economics. And then, I yeah, came out the other end of the track, and quite a lot thinner and fitter. And, and with a direction. And with a direction, yeah. So yeah, that, that's what I did. I think there's something about walking that helps you think things through. Absolutely, absolutely. So moved to Melbourne and, and studied economics in a very traditional straight economics department. You know, it teaches very mainstream economics, which is not my thing and which I'm still very critical of. But learning it was just so valuable in terms of understanding how the people who run the world think and balancing it by studying philosophy at the same time to keep me sane. So what sort of philosophical subjects did you study? I mostly sort of stayed within continental philosophy really, rather than analytical philosophy, just because I think analytical philosophy was already in my bones, having been a scientist. Yeah, sure. And I'm much more interested in the sort of complex questions around who we are and what we should be doing as species and how we interact and you know, morality. Those questions were sort of much more interesting to me at the time. And so, yeah, and, and you know, really realising through the study of economics that that ultimately, you know, you won't hear many economists say this, but ultimately our economic system is applied philosophy. Yes, yeah. At the core of, you know, mainstream neoclassical economics is utility sitting right there, which is a decision about what's good for us, right? So we have this sense that what we're doing with our economic system is maximising people's capacity to make choices, right, is what sits behind mainstream economics. And you do that by maximising people's access to money because that's the proxy for being able to make choices and make decisions. And so there's an implicit moral assumption sitting there that that is what's good for society is maximising individuals' capacity to make their own choices. You can decide if if you've got enough money to feed yourself and house yourself, then you can decide how much leisure you want. It's all supposed to be wrapped up in the one system. But of course, the individualizing of it and the assumption that what we need to do is all act individually to maximize our own preference satisfaction as we call it just leaves cold all the ideas of us being social animals that we're interconnected and interactive and rely on each other that's right that's right it's very individualist in its thinking it's absolutely individualist and the economic system that underpins you know, what people call neoliberalism, you know, which is the sort of political arm of a very similar ideology, which is gain wealth for getting all but self. You know, it's about businesses competing against each other and individuals competing against each other to get jobs. And rather than thinking about 
what do we as a society or as a species or as a local community, what do we want and how can we collectively work towards that, contribute towards that? And obviously, often the answer to that question is different from individual preference satisfaction. Yeah. And I guess when you're looking at complex systems, if your system is based on the premise of individual units operating in a predictable way, that is not at all actually true of humanity. Yeah. (laughs) And if you think about these individual units being part of a complex system, that would create an entirely different structure or settings that you'd apply to how you treat an economy. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is where the study of ecology is actually far more applicable to the economy than than people give it credit for because the ecological researchers understand the sort of complexity of interactions and the different types of agents and that there are species that compete with each other, there are species that eat each other, but there are also species that, that work together and help each other and there are those that are invaders and that there are those that are sort of slow but steady plotters and and also the idea that you can't just let your predators just eat everything, which is sort of what the capitalist mindset is. It's like, go grab whatever you can grab, and as long as you can do it, you can do it, is yeah. the pure capitalist mindset. And that's not actually how nature works either. No. No. I mean, it can be, but it's a sign of a system that's out of balance, right? There will always be some kind of correction when that kind of out of balance thing happens. And the trouble with probably us as humans, is that we're very adaptable and smart and capable of changing strategy and we're constantly dodging that correction. The correction kind of gets half thrown at us, but we find another way around. No, we we run out of trees, so we grow something else. We deplete our soils and so we import stuff. Or a virus comes along and we figure out how to create a vaccine. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But ultimately, we can't we can't dodge it forever. You know, that, that's just so abundantly clear and the sort of crisis of climate change and the current extinction crisis that we're living through, you know, just massive corrections that are coming. And if we don't understand that and grasp it, then, you know, we really are headed towards some kind of reckoning. Yeah, absolutely. I've just read a book called Donut Economics, which mm-hmm. is written for the public, not for economic specialists. But it gives some history of how our current economic system was formulated. And I do think there's a perception amongst us, and it's definitely reinforced by the politicians who are constantly telling us that they need to make the decisions they're making for the economy, as if the economy's not something we made up and as if it's something that we have to obey And I found that book really interesting and that she really makes it clear that actually humanity invented the economy and all the rules of it. And it happened at a certain point in time, which was pretty recent, actually. And there's a lot of concepts that we hold as kind of necessary or unmovable, which are not that. (laughs) So I guess my question for you is, how do you see the current economy and is it able to shift into something that could actually help us transition to a more climate-safe future? Yeah, I think it's a great book, and I think all of that is true, and, and there are problems within the economic discipline itself. It's taught in universities, and it was taught to me at, at University of Melbourne, as if it's a natural science, you know, like like physics or chemistry, where there are 
immutable laws. But as you say, that's just the nonsense. The economy is a social construct and economics as a result is a social science. And because the economy is a social construct, we can, and have in the past, reconstructed it. We can change it. We can make it what we choose. And the sad reality of the system that we currently have, the sort of economic rationalist or, or neoliberal system, which has only been around since the 1970s, the tragic part about that was that it, it was intentionally constructed by wealthy business interests in response to the system that existed before it, which again, you know, only existed for a relatively short period, which is the kind of classical Keynesian system that existed from the end of World War Two to the 1970s. So that's really only 20 years. Yeah, but it was about 25 years. But during that time in Australia, unemployment averaged 2% and inequality was, was steadily falling during that period. And the material standard of living was increasing rapidly and the term used for it was the post-war boom. That shift happened as a very intentional result of policymakers living through the Great Depression and seeing unemployment go up to 20%. And then the advent of World War II coming along and suddenly unemployment was basically zero. And they sort of said to themselves, well, if we can have full employment during the war because of government expenditure, why can't we do the same thing during peacetime? And, and that's essentially what they did. In Australia, there was a government white paper on full employment published in 1945 by the Curtin government, which laid out how to do it. They had a much more nuanced approach to public policy and public communication back then, and they talked about the pros and cons and the challenges and the difficulties and the costs of such a system, and, and they were quite open about the fact that, you know, we we decided to adopt a market-based capitalist system and one of the costs of embracing that system is that there are winners and losers. It's a competitive system and, and some people are going to lose in that competitive system and those losses create unemployment. And acknowledging that unemployment is caused by an insufficient private demand for labour, like that's the cause of, of unemployment. There's, a, there's not enough jobs, there's not enough people paying money for workers. That's what ultimately causes unemployment. And they said in that white paper, if we want all the benefits of a market-based capitalist system, then we should take responsibility for the cost. And, it, and one of those costs is unemployment. And so they, they considered unemployment to be a collective responsibility. And they took collective responsibility for it and said the government can and should spend enough money to make sure the economy is fully employed to fill the gap between private demand for labour and full employment. And then they, they did it for 25 years. Both sides of government, you know, the, the Libs at, at a few points tried to pull out of it. And in the lead up to the 1961 election, tried to bring the budget back to surplus. They were basically running deficits all the time on top of the massive deficits, deficits running World War II. And as a result, unemployment at that time crept up towards 3%. And there was public outrage about unemployment creeping up towards 3%. And, you know, unemployment now is, well, you know, pre-COVID, it was like five and a half percent, and now during COVID, much higher. But a lot of the real unemployment is currently hidden. But, but economists at the moment think that, you know, full employment is five percent. They think that going back to two percent unemployment is impossible. 
because of his sort of ahistorical approach to economics. And the fear of the deficit, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Partly the fear of the deficit. And, you know, those post-war years just make a mockery of that argument. You know, that we had the highest government debt in the history of the country as a result of World War Two, And the government for 25 years after that ran essentially constant deficit, small deficit, you know, it went up and down, but essentially constant deficit. And there was no economic problem, no economic crisis. You know, if, if you were to believe the modern rhetoric, you'd think that the post-war generations would have been struggling and suffering under the burden of all of that debt from World War II. And in fact, he called it the post-war boom. And the reason for that was just that the economic growth that resulted from full employment on top of inflation meant that the actual debt burden, so that the debt as a proportion of GDP was, was falling for all of that time. And so... You know, I think that there's lots of different ways of looking at this, but the ultimate story is, you know, it, it, which we're told today, you know, if we spend more now and go into deficit, the next generation are going to be paying for our expenditure. This is what we're hearing around the COVID, that's for sure. Yeah, that's what we're hearing right now. This is the classic case of of people, including economists, spending too much time looking at money and not enough time looking at the real economy. You know, when, when I say the real economy, I mean what people are actually doing in terms of combining labour with capital, equipment and, and factories and so on, and land, and producing goods and services. That's kind of the real economy. And then there's the financial layer, which sits on top, which is actually a very separate thing. And if you think about the real economy and you look forward in time, 2040, we run up great big deficits, and or even 2030, we go closer than that, massive COVID deficit, you know, what, in terms of the real economy, what can the impact be? Our material standard of living at any particular time is almost exclusively determined by the goods and services that we can produce at that time. Sure. So how much people are able to have what they need is detached from money in a lot of ways. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Well, it, well it, it can be, you know, if we've got politicians who are silly enough to chase deficits, to, to chase surpluses, then they can force us to suffer as a result of past debt. But, but there's no necessity for that. You know, if you imagine in 2040 we've got a trillion dollars in government debt, or in 2040 we've got no government debt, we can still produce the same goods and services either way. And so what the debt can do, this is assuming the debt's in Australian dollars, right, which all of our debt is. If we owed it to foreigners in foreign currency, it's a whole different story. So we're owing it to our own reserve bank, is that? Well, some of it now. That's another part of the story too, is the whole quantitative easing story. And, you know, that's kind of a third angle on showing what an illusion, I suppose, government debt is. And Japan's a great example of that. You know, they've, they've been doing quantitative easing for a long time, which is the, the central bank, the Bank of Japan, just like here, the Bank of Japan's owned by the government. They're buying from financial institutions, they're buying government bonds, which is government debt. They've been doing it for a long time. The Japanese government currently owes about 200% of GDP in debt. They have a debt far, far, far higher than Australia's in terms of the, the percentage of their economy. But the Bank of Japan owns half of it. So they, in fact, owe you know 100% of GDP to themselves. 
and the interest they pay, they get back as a dividend. And any central bank can do that, right? Any central bank can be buying government debt. And to all intents and purposes, that debt owned by the Bank of Japan doesn't really exist. <laughs> See, that's the bit I think that a lot of people just go, no, it's money, it's real, it's got to exist. Like, how can that not be a real thing? And when people throw accusations, they're saying, we can't be in debt, blah, blah, blah. It's it, it's hard for people who are not educated in economics, which is myself. Like, I'm listening to you going, I kind of know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's really, it, it, it's a problem. I think because it's not commonly understood means that people are really vulnerable to the messages that the media and the the parties are are trying to give. And they give them stories that present themselves well, but don't actually necessarily represent the truth of what's possible. Yes. I think that's right, and and that's the challenge is that ever since the seventies, really, the two major parties have run a, a single ticket on the economy to a large extent. You know, both embraced sort of neoliberalism. You know, I would argue that it was the Hawke-Keating government that were most responsible in in terms of implementing neoliberal reforms in Australia, and you know, at the same time. Thatcher was doing it in the UK and Reagan was doing it in, in the US. It was Hawke and Keating doing it here. And they were doing very similar things. And, and the, the sort of damage done to the society was actually much less here in Australia because it was a Labor government doing it and they were working with the unions and, you know, the, the Accord and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, there's also another line. It was that. It was the, it was the Accord that, you know, kind of destroyed the power of the unions. That's a whole other subject. But, yeah, that's right. They did do it. And it was just kind of carried forward in a, in a similar way that the post-war boom Keynesian was bipartisan. The, the sort of neoliberal agenda has been bipartisan as well. And, you know, as soon as both parties have the same policy on an issue, it's essentially removed from democratic scrutiny. There's no serious scrutiny of, of those kinds of policies. And, and Labor were sort of badgered into, you know, what they call fiscal discipline in terms of the the budgets, largely as a result of the Whitlam era, rapid fire, political reforms that ended in disaster. And He got a lot of stuff through really quickly, but it sort of was almost too much. It was a bit of a shock to the system and, and people pushed back pretty hard, didn't they? That's right. And, and coupled at the time with the OPEC oil shocks, which caused rapid inflation at the same time as the recession, which called stagflation when you get that happening. Usually inflation happens when the economy is booming. In this case, you had inflation that was driven from outside by oil prices that, that depressed the economy. And the old school Keynesian approach didn't really have a ready answer for that. And that was when the neoliberal agenda, which had been waiting in the wings, you know, been very deliberately constructed over many years and then was waiting for a crisis to come along to show that the Keynesian system was no good and was a failure. And, and that was their opportunity. You know, when the, when the OPEC oil crisis happened, they could step in and paint the Keynesian system as a, as a failure and say, we've got a solution. You know. What do you see happening now? I feel like there's a a lot of people who are still like, you can't mess with the economy, don't mess with the economy. But there's also a lot of people waiting in the wings now, I would imagine, with another replacement economic theory. I think that's, yeah, I think that's right. And people are more open to change right now, partly as a result of COVID. You know, we've sort of seen that we can change really rapidly and do things radically differently, you know, extremely.
extremely quickly. And that the government who's been saying, oh, we don't have money for that, has just been throwing bucket <laughs> loads of money at all yeah. sorts of stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you look closely enough, you just always have known that's a lie. Like, nobody ever asks them where they're going to get the $50 billion for 12 submarines or for jet fighters or, you know, whatever it might be. They just sort of pay for that and nobody asks where the money's coming from. And the same for, you know, intelligence agencies that have just been getting ever-increasing funding since September 11, 2001. So, yeah, that's right. We know now that, yes, they can actually afford these things and they can do it. And even though they're trying to reel it in, and, and, and they probably will to, to disastrous effect, really, JobKeeper and JobSeeker, I do agree. I think the, the cracks are in the system everywhere, including people's realisation that these are 90s reforms of privatising everything in the name of efficiency is a disaster. Well, the aged care system is a prime example of that right now with COVID. It was all privatised and it was set up as such a business model as opposed to a care model that we've just had massive fatality due to COVID in our aged care system. That's right, exactly. And that story is just repeated all over the economy, you know, that that where we privatised services that were working very well. You know, even the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, but but then the coalition got hold of it and, and made it into private operators give people vouchers essentially and they can spend it on these private operators and you get consumer choice and all that kind of stuff. But then you get for-profit operators who just trying to get the most of those tickets they can with the minimum expenditure and the lowest trained staff and end up with the same kind of disasters in aged care. And, you know, I mean, you can kind of go on and on with the, the privatisation of the electricity infrastructure I means that actually taking serious action on climate change is so much harder it's harder to force them to protect the community from bushfires that occur as a result of electricity infrastructure and privatising public transport. Just, you know, we know how to make public transport more efficient, right? You just you cut off the services that don't have many people on them and you leave night shift nurses to catch a taxi home or walk. I think people see that now and there's been quite a lot of opposition to recent attempts to privatise things. I just think the, the cracks are showing in many different ways. but. I, but I also think there's a lot of disillusionment at the moment, which is not empowering. You know, people have lost trust in a lot of our institutions, including the government, but also in science. You know, because science has been a little corrupted by all of these processes as well. And but also, I think there's a lot of false reporting of science and misrepresentation of science and yep. science that's badly done but presented as being gold standard. And I think all of those things, people... Again, similar to economics, people don't have the um, ability to interpret science correctly. No, that's right. No, so I think, you know, this, this comes around to education, of course, and chicken and egg problems. And that's also being privatised. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. So, you know, and, and there's a focus on education being about training you for a job. And education is, is becoming about teaching us to be good little cogs in the machine, good little consumers and workers. and Yeah, have a career, get educated in one thing and have that as a career. That's right. Rather than being a human that can exist in our society with intelligence. Yeah, yeah. And the government pushing this right now in terms of the higher education reforms with, with the fees structures, trying to encourage people into 
subjects that will get them a job and out of the humanities. You know, the, the last thing we want people doing is studying history. and A philosophy degree while they do his, this. His, history <laughs> and the classics and philosophy and, and actually learning how to think and learning how people solve problems in the past and realising actually that how people solve problems in ancient Greece and, and, and discuss problems in ancient Greece is actually still relevant to today, let alone, you know, the post-war boom years in our own country and 2% unemployment. So what are we seeing as an alternative to what is currently the economy? What what are people talking about? Yeah, well, I think, and I do think this is part of the problem, that there are lots of coherent, pretty interesting alternatives that people are, are talking about and discussing. But what we're lacking is a single, coherent, very well-championed alternative which is what, what neoliberals had. You know, they had that waiting in the wings, it was world champions, they had ent- funded the entire economic department to produce research and papers. There are lots of alternatives. You, you mentioned donut economics, which is, I think, a really interesting one for people to read and grasp the issues, but it's not what that really is. is a, a question, isn't it, rather than an answer? Yeah, it's a, and it's, a, it's sort of a goal, but it's not really how to get there. You know, the donut is about, in the, in the centre of the donut, the hole, if you like, of the donut is a place you don't want to be because that's underdeveloped, I suppose, so people don't have the necessities of life. They don't have enough food to eat or shelter or economic freedom or, you know, uh, political freedom and all those things. You don't want to be that far in. You don't want to be that far in. You want to be in the sweet spot where the donut is. If you go too far out, and in terms of particularly economic development, then you, you're busting through kind of sustainability boundaries in terms of climate or water use or the nitrogen cycles or, you know, all those other things that, that biodiversity crisis. So the donut is about staying in that sweet spot in the circle where you've developed enough to have what you need but not so much that you, you're destroying things or, or risking the future, which is a great framework for thinking about the issues, but it's not actually an economic system. It's not saying... And to do this, we'll get rid of the independence of the, of the Reserve Bank, you know. She sort of throws down the gauntlet, doesn't she? And she says, it's up to the economists of the future to figure out how to do this. It's like, oh, yeah. great. Which, uh, <laughs> you know, which is great. I mean, I think it's a great contribution. And I think the work still remains for us to get to the point where we agree on and, and can implement a, a serious alternative system. But in the meantime, we still do have plenty of tweak the mainstream system and we have recent history in terms of climate change. We've seen in Australia what a carbon price can do, what a relatively modest carbon price can do in terms of bringing down our emissions. So we had a carbon tax under the Gillard government for a few years at $23 a tonne, and it was going to move into an emissions trading scheme. And at $23 a tonne, we saw for the first time... And this was applied to businesses? Sorry, the carbon tax? Yeah, it was applied That's right, applied to major emitters in, in terms of business, and that was passed on in prices to consumers generally. The coalition warned before it came in that it's going to put a wrecking ball through the economy and be disastrous and destroy jobs and all that kind of stuff. And, and it was introduced and ran very smoothly, and there was a compensation package so that low-income earners were compensated quite generously, really. I mean, some of them were better off afterwards than before. And, and the result was fairly rapidly declining emissions, you know, it was still relatively brief. But there are, you know, there are systems that could work much better and much faster than that. And my favourite is the carbon fee and dividend, which is where you have a carbon tax, which can be quite high, and you divide the money up between 
the Australian citizens and give it back. So the money that comes in through the tax of the carbon then gets distributed to the Australian citizens, so they keep investing in the economy. and So that's almost a universal income to a degree. It's a bit like that, yeah, but, but the point is that you could have, you know, you could start it at 20 or $30 a tonne, lift it by $10 a tonne per year to get to $100 a tonne, say, you know, really high carbon price. But because that money is going back to the citizens, when prices go suddenly up really high, for things that are carbon intensive, they can actually afford to buy them, but but there is incentive for them to buy something else if they've got a choice, and there's incentives for the producers to bring down the emissions as quickly as they can because that will reduce the price and keep people buying. So we don't have to overthrow the whole economy and start again. No, that's right, and and you're and you're enlisting the kind of action and initiative and kind of creativity of everybody, really, because everybody's got an interest in either avoiding consuming things with high emissions or producing things with high emissions. If you did that at $100 a tonne, you'd get a very, very quick transition. And sure, of course, of course, you know, the result would be industries would shut down and there'd be job losses and those would be, you know, very heavy in some regions. So you'd, you'd absolutely need the government to be actively involved in in making sure those people are looked after and, and retrained and found work. And you'd be creating as many jobs as you'd be destroying, but they'd be in different places and in different industries and requiring different skills. So we'd be creating thousands of jobs as well. You know, I think we need to think about the individuals and the people who, whose livelihood be destroyed and, and look after them if you're going to do something like that. But it's all doable. We know we can do it. We can achieve full employment. We've done it for 25 years. It wasn't a fluke. That's a long time. And there was an intentional strategy which understood the, the risks and the challenges and the, the risk to inflation and all of those things. And, and they understood that and they acted to mitigate those risks and accept some of the costs. You know, that was another thing that they were just back then were openly saying, we're going to do this and it's going to have this sort of cost. You know, it's going to have this good bit and this bad bit and we think the good bits outweigh the bad bits. These days, people can't talk about it. It seems like politicians can't talk about the bad bits. No, and I think that's what's eroded people's trust because they don't talk like normal people. It's all sounds like spin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they they just get destroyed by their opposition if they do that, if they show any weakness. And I think that's a fundamental flaw in the culture of our politics. Yep. Yep. And the media is totally complicit in that too. But I, I would like to go back to your question about you know alternative systems. I do think that obsession with economic growth is a core part of what's wrong with our current economic system. You know, that the idea, and we all, we've sort of touched on this right near the beginning, but the idea of why we can say economic growth is good and, and worth pursuing in its own right is if we believe in that stuff about preference satisfaction and that, and not only that, but that kind of anybody's preferences being satisfied is as good as somebody else's. So, you know, an extra 20 bucks to... Gina Reinhardt is as good as an extra 20 bucks to a homeless person. This is literally the way that kind of economic calculus works. If we're, if we're just growing GDP, it, it's good. And distributional matters don't really come into it in, in the bigger scale calculations of just thinking growth is good. And ultimately, what we then need to be talking about is, well, if we think growth is good because it increases people's well-being, well, what is well-being? What does it mean to live a good life? And we need to actually answer those questions for ourselves as communities and as a nation, I think, and then pursue those things directly rather than pursuing economic growth on the assumption that it's going to bring about those things. 
that's just a conversation that should be alive. What are the diverse ways that people can get the food and nutrition that they need? You know, they're, they're quite likely to be a lot of different ways that suit different people, and, and we should be open to those. And ultimately, you know, I'm growth agnostic. You know, I'm not part of the, the sort of degrowth movement, which is quite a strong thing in alternative economics is, is degrowth. And I, I feel like it sort of falls into an oppositional trap. You know, I think it, it's kind of silly to want growth for growth's sake. And it's similarly misguided to want degrowth for degrowth's sake. You know, what we actually want is sustainability and social justice and have people's basic needs met at a minimum. And then from there, we want thriving. You know, we want people to thrive, but sustainably. And if we do that, and the economy grows, then terrific. If we do that and the economy shrinks, terrific. It doesn't do, it just doesn't matter. As long as we do it. <laughs> as long as we do it. And the economy is then secondary, not primary. That's right. The economy is serving that goal rather than us serving the economy. So that's kind of how I feel about growth. We need to just sort of reorient and ask the question, well, why growth? And I do think that's another crack that is appearing in the system. We just finished 30 years of uninterrupted economic growth in Australia. And during that time, the sort of share of economic growth going to wage earners, to people working for a wage, throughout that entire period has been steadily declining. So, you know, we talked earlier on about post-war boom, and during that time, inequality was falling for 25 years, steadily falling. So the share of our nation's economic output going to the very rich, the whole, you know, the owners of capital and the owners of business, was falling, right, during those 25 years. And that is why the system changed, because the rich didn't like it. Their share of output was falling. And and ever since neoliberalism, since the 1970s and 80s, their share has been just steadily going up again. So, you know, they've, they've taken back control of the economy, and the share going to wage labour has been steadily falling throughout that time. So we... We need to have more people understand that that's the case and that that was a choice. Those things that happened in the 70s and 80s were choices and we can revisit those choices and we can remake them. And I think that we also need to really understand that money isn't just affluence, it's power. And we're seeing that especially in our political system and as more and more the political system gets exposed as being vulnerable to donors and those sort of things, we're really seeing, and this is especially impacting our environment and this gas-led recovery that our current government's pushing is because the people who have accumulated obscene amounts of money are able to influence uh, politicians. Yep, yeah. So money is power. <laughs> I think that the, the conversation about power is such an important one and, and not talked about very much, really, political and social power. And democracy... You know, I, I guess historically power structures were reset by revolution and war and pestilence. And democracy was sort of supposed to fix that, right? You know, every few years we were supposed to have the opportunity through the ballot box to reset power structures. But as I talked about before, both the major parties in a two-party system, once both the major parties agree on something, then that, that power is gone. That's, and that's democratic capture. The big businesses have bought off both sides of politics 
and remove those issues from democratic scrutiny so we can't reset the power structures at an election. You know, Labor comes in and they tweak a little bit towards the left and Liberals come in and they tweak a little bit towards the right, but ultimately they're just tweaking in within a very small boundary either way. It makes us feel like we've made a choice, but actually the result is not much change. Yeah, that's right. The, re- the result is still within the same paradigm and that narrow paradigm isn't actually the whole spectrum. We feel like that is the spectrum and that the fights that go on within it are really significant and important when the storm's in a teacup if you can back off and, and see all of the options that are available and all of the options that have been explored through history. And in terms of climate change? I do think that climate change is, is one of the massive cracks that's appearing in the current system in terms of people's understanding and, and appreciation for what's going on. And, and climate change is actually the symptom of the bigger problem. It, it, it feels like it's the problem, but it's the symptom of the bigger problem. And, and if, we, if we find technological fixes, for instance, for getting ourselves out of a, a climate catastrophe, we're still going to be left with the extinction crisis. The public system's still going to be there. And the inequality, even at a human level, if we're not even talking about a species or ecosystem level, we've got that human inequality as well. That's right. Embedded in this system. Yeah. Which we're seeing play out in extremes in in America, I think. We are. They're sort of like a couple of decades ahead of us in terms of the effects of this policy. Yep, yep. And, you know, both parties, particularly the coalition, but both parties have been just very steadily taking us down the same path as, as America, which is... Frightening. Yeah, and it's nuts, particularly when we have the successful social democracies of Northern Europe in particular as, a, as another path we could be taking where inequality is very low, general life satisfaction is very high, they have great health care, they're closing down their prisons because they have a restorative approach to justice. Basically, every single policy realm you can look at, they, they kind of outperform us and particularly outperform the United States. And yet... We sort of stumble along somehow in, in the wake of the US following them down this destructive path. And so in terms of the environment again, as an ecologist and an economist, do you see us being able to shift things quickly enough to alter the course, to get out of the worst scenarios? Do you think it's possible? Absolutely think we're capable of it. I don't actually doubt that for a second. And, and I think... What we've done in response to COVID demonstrates how fast we can completely change the way we do things. And I think it's also opened people's eyes to that very thing that we are capable of shifting and, and people are interested in change right now, I think. So, yeah, I have no doubt we can do it. The, the question is, you know, how do we overcome the, the kind of vested interest and the sort of momentum that investment money creates and interestingly, like I was discussing before about a carbon price, in terms of climate change, it's not hard. We already know how to do it. If we just had a, a government with commitment, if we hadn't had Tony Abbott, we'd still have a carbon price now and we'd be seeing Australia's carbon emissions it was so far lower than they are now if that had just stayed. And that came down to a single vote in the coalition party room. So we were close. And of course, that's only Australia's contribution, but Australia as a as a laggard and as a sort of climate policy vandal internationally is a substantial force. And we could do an enormous amount in the other direction by, by leading positively. And I do think, you know, the bushfires last season 
did have a big impact on people and, and they're thinking about climate change and, and I think there is a much greater appetite in the population for, you know, taking serious action. It's just a matter of time before we can get rid of the current dinosaurs who don't believe in it, it's true or pretend they don't believe it's true. The Labor Party do want to be doing something, but actually the sad reality is that they're so scarred by their experience from last time that they probably won't do it unless it's bipartisan in terms of, you know, really serious, reintroducing carbon pricing. So, yes, I think I think it's possible and I think we can change pretty quickly and we obviously need to. And we can also start, start at home. I think there's so much local community action going on at the moment and the economics is turning the corner by itself on renewable energy. It's actually taking active government intervention to stop renewable energy taking over at the moment. They're definitely fighting a losing battle, right? The winds of change are against them in every way, politically, socially, economically. But they're they're hanging on and they're bloody resilient at the moment. I'm sure that we will go about making absolutely dramatic change. The question is what's the turning point and what's the tipping point and how far will we have gone before we do it? And, And... what does that mean for the trajectory after that? But, you know, there'll come a time eventually where we'll go, holy shit, you know, we've got to completely get rid of all emissions and start sucking emissions out of the air. And and to use the well, overused war analogy, you know, if we went on a war footing, we could probably do that in two years. Well, effectively, that's what coronavirus has done, is put us on that emergency setting. Yep. And we saw how much change the government could make happen very quickly. That's right. We just need a government who'll do it instead of constantly positioning themselves to invest in more fossil fuels. Indeed, indeed. And so, you know, I am very hopeful and I think we're, we're a remarkable species in terms of what we can achieve when we really try. But there is that risk of just the stalling, the stalling, the stalling and, and we get to some point where there are feedback loops and the, and the, the damage is enormous anyway. And Beyond our control. Yeah, yeah, and we get nature eventually pushing back against us, and it will. I think it's an interesting conversation. There have been mass extinctions before and, and the planet's bounced back and people talk about saving the planet and things like that. And actually, you know, the planet's going to be fine. But we're going to be the dinosaurs that don't exist anymore. Well, that's right. Or, or, you know, a very small number of us will survive on and hopefully learn important lessons and, and, and life will irradiate back out again from the mass extinction as it always has before. So I, I take I do take some comfort in that, you know, that kind of even in the worst case scenario, in the big picture, is it any worse than the you know a meteor strike or a massive volcanic eruption that have happened in the past that has wiped out a lot of life on Earth? And we're we're just another natural process. I think sort of separating us from nature is part of the mistake. We're we're a product of evolution, and a lot of our behaviour is, is kind of consistent with what you would expect from. Darwinian evolutionary processes, creature go in an environment where there's no natural constraint for it, and this is what happens. We're a mouth plague. We're a, you know, we're just we're just another species doing our thing, really. But we have the benefit of actually making a choice about it and deciding whether or not we chop down that last tree or destroy that last bit of arable land. And we are capable of making those choices, and we've made them before. A part of at least what I've taken on in my work is nudging people to see the choices that are available.
That was Warwick Smith, ecologist and economist. Warwick has just developed a vision piece for our local region for how our local economy could work if we just thought differently about things. There is a link in the episode description at saltgrasspodcast.com if you want to read this piece. It's only two pages long and it's a lovely look into a possible future where, to take my metaphor from the start of the show, Dad has turned off the car and opened the garage door. We may still have to do some chores for our pocket money, but we won't be choking on toxic fumes while we do them. Salt. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green at saltgrasspodcast.com. My name is Alison Hanley and I've been your host today. You can check out all episodes of the show at saltgrasspodcast.com and find all episodes on your favourite podcast app. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. This program was produced in partnership with the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, MASG, and Main FM. If you would like to respond to something discussed on the program, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com.